and welcome back to the Age of Enfrightenment. It's been a couple of weeks since we've talked to you, and the last thing that we left on was a riveting episode, I think, on witchcraft. And we made a promise to come back with even more of that. But that's not what we're doing today, because we don't have magical powers and we were incapable of uh, arranging that to happen. But in the meantime, we've put together, I think, something really fun and not only really fun, but something that we've actually got some requests to do, which is an episode much like our inaugural episode, our episode zero, in which we each kind of bring something to the table from random subject matter all over the fear space or the fear universe. So before we get too much into it, I, I'm very happy to introduce my two co-hosts. The first being Theo. Oh, and the second is Dave. <laughs> hey, everyone. Uh, Ed, can that be your catchphrase from now on? Okay, well, I feel it would work better if I had, like, a cowbell that I could ring <laughs> as I'm doing that. Just, oh, no, clank, 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 clank. Right. Do that, and then I can embed, uh, like, a sitcom audience cheering <laughs> like you just entered the room whenever you do it. All right, I'm yeah. really into that idea. I let's, think we've established that, that you're our Kramer anyway, so people <laughs> people already feel that way. We'll get well, t-shirts with of a cowbell, and the cowbell's, like, anthropomorphic, and he's saying, oh! <laughs> yeah, because you remember when Kramer said that with that cowbell? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anyway. people probably would have responded to it better if he had, like, a cowbell or a slide whistle or something. <laughs> <laughs> and if he had said that on stage instead of that other word that he got in lots of trouble for. <laughs> anyway, uh. moving on from that. So we each have something that we're going to bring to the table, and I'm going to go first. But before we do that, just to check in, how are you guys doing? Are you excited about this? Are you excited about getting through this so that we can get on to witchcraft? How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm, I'm super stoked about this one. I haven't told Nick or Ed. Like, I, I've, I've skirted around what I'm talking about, but it's all I've been thinking about all week. Like, I'm, I'm really excited to hear you guys' reaction to this one. Right. Not yeah, his no. job or his fiance <laughs> or his health or even remembering yeah. to eat. No, I'm not going to work or anything like that. And I'm just thinking about this all day. So, I'm so thirsty. Just drawing on the walls and sitting in your own poop. And, <laughs> and, uh, and Theo, how about you? I'm feeling I'm feeling good. Um, you know, like you said, we got some requests. I think people really dig this style of episode. So it's going to be a good break. And, you know, it's not like we're not going to get back to the witch thing. Um, you know, just sometimes, um, you know, in a perfect world, we'd be able to sync up all of our schedules perfectly to do this. But, you know, we have jobs and a life and we don't like each other very much. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to get things rolling sometimes, but we'll get to it. I mean, you know, we're, we're a podcast about spooky shit. I feel like uh, we don't have to be super formal. I have a very specific clause in my contract that I can't be in the same room as Nick. That is true. Um, so it makes scheduling these in person very difficult. Yeah. Because he has to be at least 200 feet away from me. Right. And Theo is basically, he's not only our cowbell Kramer, he's also like the the child of a divorce who kind of has to spend one weekend with Dave and then the next with me. And it's really hard on him. But the fact of the matter is that Dave and I are extremely selfish and we'd rather not be around each other and make him suffer. Yeah, plus, do you know how hard it is to record 
uh, with somebody live when they're continuously hitting a cowbell in the room. <laughs> the cowbell was it your ruins idea. all of our audio. <laughs> I didn't even like the cowbell idea. I think it's stupid. I think it's all an right, asshole well, get, idea. I, I'll, I'll tell you what, up. then. I, you know, it doubled down. Then get rid of the cowbell, Ed. Yeah, that's so what I thought. So, anyway. <laughs> I'm going to get rid of the cowbell now. Now I need yeah, the cowbell. Pe- people sure. know me for the cowbell. Get rid of Nick before you get rid of the cowbell. Yeah. We already trademarked it and everything. We can't. We can't <laughs> You're going to replace Nick with the cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> if you filled all of the time I take up on these episodes with just cowbell, there wouldn't be much left. <laughs> <laughs> Just cowbell and us responding to the cowbell. Just, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point, cowbell. <laughs> Thanks, cowbell. I was kind of tuning out, but on to what I was going to say. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're excited to get into this one. And we're also another thing that we're excited about doing on this podcast, we've, which we've done a few times, but not as much as we'd like, is have guests. And uh, part of what we're excited about with our next episode on witchcraft is going to be having a guest. And the important thing is making sure that we fit that schedule and that we can all get in the same room together because we really want it to be a very cool experience uh, for all of the listeners. And we don't want to half-ass it for you either. No, no. And we're so uh, grateful that people are willing to talk to us about this stuff and, and to listen. So thank you for uh, sticking with us. And I think this one's going to be really fun uh, to just dive right in. The first thing we're going to talk about, we're going to work through very, I think, different subject matter. And I kind of ran the gamut of, of ideas this past week on what my mini segment was going to be. And I think a lot of ideas that I had will potentially be full episode segments because it turns out you can talk for a really long time about a lot of things. But I kind of picked out something that was sort of short and sweet and, and realized that it fits in well to a very lovely holiday that we all just celebrated with, with the important women in our lives. And that's Mother's Day. So this Yay. is gonna be this is gonna be a particularly uh, adorable and sweet segment of the age of enfrightenment. <laughs> but of course, uh, we can't just talk about our mothers or other mothers that we know who are wonderful people because that just wouldn't fit our uh, our whole vibe. So what I want to talk about are famous monster moms, and that is not uh, shitty moms or moms that you don't like to be around, but moms that actually have monster kids. So I wanted to talk about a few specifically, and part of what spawned the idea was on our last episode, we talked a little bit about Lilith and how she is sort of the biblical mother of demons and, and how that how she kind of gave witchcraft to the world and, and all of those things. And it got me thinking about this motif that we have throughout history and throughout culture of sort of monster moms. And, you know, even now I, I think of stuff like uh, the like Aliens, uh, the Alien sequel that James Cameron did, where there is a monster queen. And, you know, it's sort of insect-like, but it also plays into this idea of, like, the quintessential mother of monsters, all of the most terrible things in the world. So I kind of wanted to look into some great examples of that throughout history. And the first one that I wanted to bring up is actually from Norse mythology. This was something else that I brought up briefly on the podcast before, and that was that in certain uh, interpretations, Loki, the trickster god, um, is both mother and father to Fenris Wolf. The more traditional uh, view on that is that Loki's wife was the mother of Fenris Wolf, but also the two other really big 
of the three monsters that that play a huge part in uh, Ragnarok, in the end of the world. And that's Angerboda. Angerboda was a giantess. She was a Jotun. So she was from Jotunheim or Jotunheim. And she was uh, Loki's boo. And the two of them got <laughs> together and they had three horrific children. Uh, one of them being Hell, which if that sounds familiar, yes, that's exactly where we get that word from. Hell becomes the the master of Helheim, and the which is the land of the dead. All of German the, Hell, <laughs> all of the German Hell. So so Berlin <laughs> in the in the forties, I guess. Just um, hell with cuckoo clocks. <laughs> 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 oh, welcome to Hell. Um, so oh God, that's terrifying. <laughs> what? But so friendly. So hell is one of them, and and this was a monster who was half, uh, in some descriptions, half of a, a beautiful woman, and the other half was a rotting, stinking, blackened corpse. So that's fun. <laughs> and the other two kids being uh, Fenris Wolf, who uh, devours the sun in Ragnarok, and um, I always pronounce this a little wrong, I think, but uh, Jormungandr which is the Midgard serpent who is big enough to basically cover the nine realms. So this is uh, the mother of those monsters, which is Angerboda. And I think she's like really quintessential to this like picture we have in our heads of like mother of monsters. Cause she's a giant. Her name itself means one who offers sorrow. So it's sort of like every, that was everything. That my nickname in high school. <laughs> <laughs> it's like everything you can imagine, uh, like an 80s like metal band, like death metal band basing an entire concept al- album off of would be like Angerbada's womb, pretty much. <laughs> I'm sure that exists already. So I just thought she's like one of the most quintessential like metal badass monsters and like mothers of monsters that there is out there. Now... Yeah, I'm only partially through Neil Gaiman's book about Norse mythology. Right. Um, where was she supposed to come from, or is like her background mysterious? Uh, I do have it. Uh, have a little bit on her. Let's see. Well, if she was a Jotun, then uh, you know, like Nick said, she was a frost giant, and yeah. the way that the Nordics treated frost giants is more akin to kind of like demons in other religions. So they were the, the the bad guys, the oppressors. Yeah, and they were there. Um, most of them predate the gods. So when Odin sort of took power, the Jotuns were sort of already around doing things. And there were they have you know a creation myth that's really in some ways similar to a lot of other creation myths that has to do with an earth goddess of sorts and then, and then a God kind of bringing everything into, but they're almost more like the Greek Titans where they're sort of like they're pre gods and, and sort of part of their lineage was in Jotunheim. And the other part of their lineage was what would eventually become Asgard, but which was sort of like a middle zone with nothing when Odin was dreamed into an existence. So Odin kind of, lived in this valley that was sort of nothingness and kind of saw places like Jotunheim that were already like ancient at that time and, and challenged those people. So that's why the, the Jotuns were like always enemies of, of the Asgardians and Loki being a frost giant himself by his lineage would leave Asgard on occasion. And he would kind of like 
sneak away to his to his side piece, Angerboda. Get back to his <laughs> and his that terrible, was also, awful monster wife. Yeah, and really <laughs> and really sealed the fate for a lot of people because he did that, and then Odin and the other gods just weren't having it. So that's why they threw the Midgard serpent in the sea, but like a goldfish, he grew to m- meet the size of his container, which means he was as big as the entire sea. In the myth, and, they always said he could surround the earth and bite his own tail. Right. And Fenrir, who they they chained up, they tricked him and they chained him up and and that he was like raised basically by the gods as like a puppy, if you can imagine it. And then they sort of betrayed him and locked him up. And and these like monster children of Angerboda are the ones who wreaked havoc and brought the end of the world later on. Yeah. Now, uh, if you don't know what Ragnarok is, it's basically... Uh, the end times for Asgard. It, it's the final battle uh, that the Asgardians will lose. Now, are are these guys supposed to play a part in Ragnarok, or is it just part of their mythology that these things exist? Oh no, they play a huge part in Ragnarok. Um, it, in fact, like ang- like I was saying, Angerboda's kids are her three main kids with Loki are basically the main players that wreak hell on the earth and on Asgard and, and destroy key gods and bring very things. And, and Odin knows this. So it's like, it kind of goes into this thing that I think a lot of mythology has, which is this idea of destiny and knowing who your undoer is knowing that, that one day the Fenris wolf is going to devour you or the Midgard serpent who, who kills her, uh, not Hercules, obviously wrong mythology who kills Thor. Um, so those things are kind of known and that's actually a theme that gets carried through, especially with this mother of monsters idea moving on to Greek mythology is Echidna, which is one, um, that I didn't know as much about just what, what she looked like. And I didn't realize that Echidna was the mon- was the mother of like basically all the Greek monsters that we know the best. Mm-hmm. So Echidna was a daughter of Titans, basically. So similar to Angerboda, almost sort of like predating the gods themselves. Um, in certain myths, she's explained as being a daughter of Gaia, which is pretty much the Earth personified. So really old, ancient kind of existence. And Echidna is a lot of people might recognize from maybe certain comics or different things that they've played with this picture. Sometimes even the Gorgons are shown this way. But she had the head and and torso of a woman because if the Greeks are going to do anything, they're going to put tits on a monster. They can't can't help themselves. (laughs) They have to. And then the rest of her body was a serpent. So she's often sometimes uh, explained to be a sea serpent or a dragon. She's called one of a group of sort of dragon sisters that are very crucial to to Greek myths. But she's got some seriously heavy-hitting monster kids. Uh, Among them that people will definitely know would be the Hydra, the Sphinx, uh, Cerberus, the three-headed dog. Some slightly lesser-known ones but still pretty popular would be Chimera, which is another uh, very hybrid-looking animal. Chimera is often uh, depicted as like a lion, a goat, and a snake in varying shapes and forms. And, and sometimes uh, I've, seen, I've seen different accounts in, on different sites that attribute uh, Scylla 
or Skilla to to her as well, which is one of the two monsters. If if you read the Odyssey in high school, there's uh, Scylla and Charybdis are the are the the whirlpool and the monster that Odysseus gets stuck between when he's in the sea. And one of those is said to be potentially one of Echidna's children, or or sometimes attributed to Lamia, who's also sort of a snake-like woman. Yeah. Because as we know from mermaids, that apparently they were all thought the best part of the woman was up top without really thinking that through what what that meant for for uh for reproduction but i think what's interesting about her is much like anger boda she kind of like represents the ugliness of the world sort of personified she was sort of a representation of the slime and the muck of the ocean like the actual kind of like gross like when a, a sea dries out in the Mediterranean during certain months, that sort of slime that's left over is like represented by creatures like Typhus, who is one of the one of her baby daddies, and also Echidna herself. And she was also called the Tartarian lamprey. And Tartarus, as people know, is it was sort of like a, a demon god, demon kind of titan as well. So both of these cultures kind of created this mother of monsters of saying like. Basically, if you think about it in real world terms, anything that goes bump in the night, instead of just giving them different things, it's kind of interesting that both cultures decided to say, well, they must all come from Echidna or all come from Angerboda. And like I kind of pointed out with the aliens thing and that sort of mother queen, I think this has become like almost a trope that we have in our mythology that keeps showing up over and over again. Yeah, I always wonder if the various mothers of monsters were invented before or after the fact. I often think that they were invented after the fact as a way to explain the existence of these monsters. Because you can imagine at a certain point, somebody is going to ask, well, where did these things come from? And it's probably hard to explain that, like, the good gods uh made these things that are going to terrorize you now they have to come from somewhere and typically it's it's almost always a mother figure right it couldn't have been a guy that would why would why would he mess up so bad well i think you're right you know we they're they're everybody tries to explain these where these monsters come from because everything has to have an origin so i mean i can in in a sense it kind of makes sense that they have a mother because you think about mothers in the animal kingdom uh mama bears mama lions even mama birds and they're the most ferocious animals oh yeah they are the the baddest you know people out there and like every you know it's kind of like you said theo in that uh you know we talked about the bear story from our woods episode and how like yeah, I, the scariest thing you could run into is a mother bear, without yeah. a doubt. <laughs> so the only thing scarier than a monster is going to be the thing that created that monster. The monster's and mom, yeah. Yeah, and cared for <laughs> for the monster. Yeah, and I think there's something, too. I, I, I'm sure there are much more scholarly papers than our conversation on this, but there's got to be something to just the general terror that is actual live birth. Like someone must. Oh yeah, have, it's the worst thing. Some storyteller around a fire had seen that one time and just been like, "That was fucked up." I've and seen some started shit, telling, man. "I will never get over that." Right. I mean, the entire Alien franchise is kind of built on how horrifying the notion of birth is and the notion of having something living inside of you. So all of these monster-like uh, moms are sort of that the epitome of that. This like you're actually going to bring forth terror into the world out of your vagina (laughs) (laughs) so uh kind of quickly moving on i just have a a couple more but one that that i thought was was would be interesting to bring up because it's our podcast and we we talk about its creator a lot 
Mr. Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Oh, I know that guy. Yeah, yeah, we, we're, we're all big fans here, as people know. Um, but there's actually a fertility deity, and she doesn't feature... I, I kind of went back through uh, my, my copy of Lovecraft Stories and did some research online. She actually doesn't feature much as far as, like, description goes. But her no. name is uh, Shub uh, Nigaroth. And knowing what oh, yeah. we've already discussed about Love, Lovecraft, I think we understand where the first part of that second part of her name comes from. Her name is Shub Nigoroth, just to repeat. Mm-hmm. So we yeah. will refer to her from now on as Shub N-Word Roth. The black goat of the woods. <laughs> but uh, it, it's sort of a perfect example of, of the true Lovecraftian horror because this was a, sort of an invoked demon and an, an invoked elder god that shows up in a lot of Lovecraftian invocations. And she's basically a giant gray mass of like organs and tentacles and mouths, um, like a lot of them are, but also having tiny goat legs. And I'm not sure if it's just two or if it's just like covered in goat legs. I mean, it's Lovecraft, so it could be like a goat leg for every mouth for all we know. (laughs) But she's sort of constantly birthing creatures into existence. So she's sort of the most cranked up to 11 version of Angerboda and of echidna that you can imagine because it's basically just a mass of organs and meat that's just constantly like spurting gross and monsters out of it churning out these monsters <laughs> yeah. yeah in true lovecraftian fashion it's not as simple as like an organism like she's almost described in things that i've read as almost like the sun how sort of the sun has its like bursts it has it's like uh what are they called the solar flares that kind of like burst out and then get reabsorbed back in and so some of these creatures will like spurt out of its one of its many holes and then just be sort of reabsorbed back into the organism so ones that get away are the ones that will like shuffle off to a planet and wreak havoc and and become like a, a monster but this isn't like a loving organism that's giving birth to monsters. Like it's just kind of like, like you said, like sharding out monsters and then just like reabsorbing it into itself to like take on the energy. So it's, it's easily like the craziest mom in any, in any uh, mythology that anyone's ever come up with. You know, we could, and we should do an entire episode just on Lovecraft hangups and you know, the, the weird shit that he felt and believed because there's lots of scholarly essays out there talking about the reason for all of his monsters having this sort of almost vaginal quality is that he was right. terrified of the female figure. Right. And I mean, he was married and he had a couple of kids, but like from all accounts, like he was never like close with his wife and treated sex more as like a job than as something he enjoyed doing. And it said like towards the end of their marriage, they got divorced. Um after a couple of years, like the most physical um, touch he could stand was touching her with a gloved hand. So, you just know, a just a single glove like Michael Jackson. Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, the dude definitely has some problems. And I think, yeah, the the black goat of the woods is definitely uh, kind yeah. of all of the worst parts of his mind f- rolled up into one figure. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm glad you brought up that was the title of uh, the Black Goat of the Woods. That's sort of like the the anglicized version of of uh, Nugaroth. Um and it's yeah, it's just like one of those perfect things. And I think Theo, what you're saying, like plays in perfectly to this 
cultural hang up because I think anger Boda and and uh, echidna come from that same place, that fear of like this super powerful feminine entity that can create things that destroy you before you even see them coming. So it's it's clearly something that's stuck around for a long time. And that's why we want to honor them on this Mother's Day. <laughs> and just to tie it up, I, I as a personal note, and this I don't know if this is something that's like been manufactured by this artist on purpose, but if anybody is listening to this right now and knows me really well, you'll know I'm not kidding at all. The last one that I'm going to bring up on this list in particular is Lady Gaga. Yeah. Because she, <laughs> she herself has gone by Mother Monster and has her fans hold up a claw-like hand. And what's interesting is, is I recently watched uh, the hotel season of American Horror Story, which... We, we don't have to talk about the merits of it because it wasn't particularly a great season, but a character that was, was really good was the Countess, which is played by Stephanie Germanata, Lady Gaga. And is she a Dracula? She's, yeah, she's a Dracula. Oh, cool. And she specifically has an undead child named Bartholomew that is like hideous to look upon. And and she also is this surrogate mother for this like group of orphan vampire children that she steals. And I, it's clearly they're playing off of her mother monster persona, but it's I, it almost makes me wonder, like, oh, what if down the whisper down the lane of history that happens like 500 years from now, Lady Gaga is like our version of Anger Boda or of Echidna? Oh, God, that'd be awesome. Wouldn't that <laughs> be incredible? So and just like anything that came out right now, like any sort of cool new pop culture monster like the babadook or something like that like they get sort of turned wrapped up into this thing of like oh well clearly they were one of lady gaga's kids because she was the mother of all monsters in in the 20 you know 2010s so i just thought that would be kind of a cool way to wrap it up because it's clearly something that still resonates and she's clearly still super into it her fans are super into it because it's just a cool thing to think about, this sort of mother of all monsters being out there somewhere and being the baddest, scariest monster you could possibly run into. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, so, that's, so, that's, so that's it for me. Uh, I wanted to talk. I thought that would be kind of fun and, and gross and, and sort of in our wheelhouse, but I'm really excited uh, to kind of move on to, to Theo's next. I'm, I'm, I know a little bit about this, but I definitely want to hear more specifics about this particular character. Yeah, you know, I gotta say, I, I like that when when I do this, um, when we do the the separate topic thing, I, I always go for something very singular. Uh, but I like that you guys both do big idea concepts. Just you know, kind of selfishly, I enjoy listening to it. Oh, uh, thanks, man. Yeah. My topic is different kinds of combs. <laughs> so uh, there, there's actually there's three different kinds of materials typically that you want to start out with. There's the traditional wood. Uh, I can't keep doing this. Well, I, I mean, I thought it was my turn to talk, but okay. If you're going to climb out on a limb, we're going to leave you there. We're, we're yeah. just going to save you because it's not going anywhere. I was waiting for someone to interject. I imagine that in the old days, they no made one combs a out of bone, right? Like, like sheep bone. We are going to find out everything I knew about combs if I just kept going. <laughs> hey, you're the one who has to edit this down, so you can go all night if you want. <laughs> But uh, right. what are you going to talk about, Theo? All let's, right. let's have it. I'm going to talk about Spring-Heeled Jack. Yeah. Now, Spring-Heeled Jack is a name that you might have heard before. It pops up a lot in pop culture. 
Um, what you might not know is that it was an actual person or thing. Well, at the very least, an event that happened. So in London in 1837, a police officer was walking his beat at night, and he was walking by a hedge, like a big hedge. He said it was probably around like seven to eight feet tall. And over the hedge leapt a man, and the man landed in front of him, and he burped up a ball of blue flame. And and is the is that the correct verb? Was it he actually burped it? It wasn't like he breathed fire. Like is that the most accurate depiction that was given? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe I'm taking some liberties here, but I mean that's that's how it's gonna go. You're just gonna kind of like bleh and flames. No, well, I but I'm asking because I love that. That's like that's so much. <laughs> I feel like that's so much uh, cooler and stranger. Like that would stop me dead in my tracks way more than someone sort of like elegantly breathing fire would be sort of just a belch of flame. Yeah. So this is the first time that this guy showed up, and this is in London. And over the next couple months, he kept doing it. He would find people on their way home or just out at night, and he would appear in front of them and scare the shit out of them. And they all had very similar accounts of what the man looked like. He was tall and thin, and he wore some kind of helmet. And... It sounds like it was like a military helmet or a riding helmet, something like that. He had glowing red eyes, and his clothes were also very specific. He wore a black cloak, and he would wear white. It was described as oil skin, so that's basically um, what they used to call rain gear back in the day. Mm -hmm. So he had oil skins, and they were white, and they are always depicted as being very tight. And besides that, I said he had the glowing red eyes. Uh, he had metallic claws. And he would just, you know, blue flames would shoot out of his mouth, and he could jump crazy high. And this kept happening to the point where the mayor of London had to make a decree. He had to bring it up in, like, a public forum because people kept getting attacked. So people started noticing a pattern. He would find women walking home at night and attack them. And it would always talk about how he would assault them and rip their clothes and try and get in real close and then just vanish and spring off. And he would go for, it seems like more than anything else, he would go for women and police. Um, in 1838, there was a woman named Jane Alslop. Well, she wasn't a woman. She was a girl. She was a teenage girl. And she was in her house, and it was in all of the attacks occurred in or around London. She was in a town called Lambeth, which is just, you know, basically like a suburb of London, even though they didn't really have suburbs back then. But... Uh, so she hears a knock at the door, and she opens, and there's this cloaked figure, and he says that he's a cop, and they had just caught spring Heel Jack, and he needed a light. So she runs, and she gets a candle, and she brings the candle out and opens the door and sees that it's not a cop, it's spring Heel Jack, or at least a man that looks like the way he's right. described. So the he attacks her. on this guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he attacks her and does the same thing, you know, just like rips her clothes off. And she manages to get away, and she wasn't alone. She had a sister who was in the house with her, and her sister hears the commotion, runs downstairs, and upon seeing the, the sister come to her aid, Jack runs off. So up to this point, like, I don't, I don't think he ever, like, no one died, right? Like he, Nobody died. Yeah. Nobody got hurt. I mean, he was he just was, a menace. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was a creep, and he would target women, and he'd, like, rip their clothes off, but he wouldn't, you know, he didn't rape any of them. He didn't, you know brutalize anybody 
like I said, it seemed to be women and police that he would go for. And at the time, there's all these rumors going around. You know, people think that it's a demon or some kind of he has some kind of supernatural powers. And he's able oh, yeah. to. Like, what else are they supposed to think? Oh, right. Like, exactly. There's no reasonable explanation for something like that at that time. Mm hmm. The superpowers that he seemed to have were shooting flames out of his face and jumping super high. Uh, so in 1843, there were some accounts in um, Northamptonshire, which is an area of uh, England known as the Midlands, so like the middle part of the country. And this is around the time it sort of started dying down. And he started popping up again. And this time, the reports were changing a little bit. It was saying that they still thought it was Bring Hill Jack, and he was still doing his same thing. But, like, he was described as wearing, like, a devil mask, and he had horns. So he had took on a more, like, demonic figure. Mm -hmm. It happened, like I said, that was 1843, and that happened a little bit there. And the last sightings of them, I mean, they're still, you know, at once every couple of years, somebody says they see Spring Hill Jack. Now it's just kind of like UFO sightings. Nobody yeah. really gives a shit. But in 1877, he was in this town called Aldershot where there was a military barracks and he started attacking soldiers. So there's a report of him. There was a soldier who was on guard at the base. He saw this man running towards him and he ordered the man to halt. He wouldn't. As he got closer, he saw he has this black cloak, the helmet, the white clothes, and he's running towards him and he tries to shoot at him. He misses. The guy runs up and smacks him. And then oh just God. disappears. <laughs> That's so disrespectful. Spring, yeah. yeah, Spring Hill Jack sounds like a cold motherfucker. So they actually had the this kept happening. So the guards had like special orders because he kept showing up and fucking with the with the soldiers. And that was in 1877, and that was around the time that the sightings of Spring Hill Jack stopped. He starts becoming this kind of like cult figure. He starts showing up in like the Penny Dreadfuls. And uh, there's some pretty famous pictures of him. Some of them have him looking kind of like Dracula or Mr. Hyde. You know, he just has like the the suit and the cape and it's very like debonair looking. Um, a lot of the other ones, the more popular ones, have him looking like a superhero almost. Yeah, I was just going to say I just pulled up uh, the Spring Heel Jack cereal and you're and it's a penny drevel. It says one penny on there and it's it's an illustrated cover from 1904. And he basically looks like a cross between Batman and Robin Hood like right. he's got he's got on the tight pants but he has like leathery wings and the short little black horns on his helmet mm -hmm. like he he looks much more like a prototype of what would become a superhero you're absolutely right almost like Zorro like I guess yeah and Batman is sort of a composite the original Batman anyway sort of a composite of a lot of like uh folk figures and old um literary characters spring hill jack is definitely one of the inspirations there so once jack started to disappear and the sightings and encounters became less frequent people start speculating as to what the fuck happened so obviously a lot of people thought that he was some kind of demon or fairy or something but nobody was ever ever able to find him or catch him or get any lead on what he was exactly but there was one theory that i found as to who he was that, to me anyway, makes perfect sense. So there was, at the time that Jack started showing up, there was a man named Henry Beresford. And what made Henry Beresford special was that he was the third Marquis of Waterford in Ireland. So he was an Irish nobleman, and he had a nickname, the Mad Marquis, because he was 
a famous drunk and womanizer <laughs> and had a penchant for vandalism and violence. He was an Irish guy. We, yeah, you said pretty that much. Uh, you know, in, in, it's so hard to get famous for that now. I'm just that. <laughs> yeah, today it would just be Colin Farrell, but back then he was special. <laughs> but um, he actually, one of the cool things that I found when I was researching this was that Henry Beresford, actually the term paint the town red came from him. Really? Yeah, he was in a town where he and his buddies were super drunk and they come into this town after a day of partying and there was construction going on at the time and they had red paint and they just get the red paint, lose their shit, run around the town painting stuff. <laughs> was it a symbol of like of his uh, of his like marquistum or was there was a significance to red or were no, they just that? No, hammered? he just found the red paint and they just start running around screaming, <laughs> painting stuff red. Yeah. And it's, I, it's good. I think that that's proof that like Maybe there are some benefits of like having television and video games because keeps that nonsense to a minimum. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, what else are you going to do at this time? You find paint and you're like, I know what I'm doing today. Yeah, it's uh, great. I love that this and... whole thing could have just been started from him just being like, hey, guys, check this out. Look, look, what, look, what, <laughs> look what I'm going to do to this guy's house. Then realizing that they're powerful enough to do it to the entire town without anyone saying anything. Do yourselves a favor, look it up because it's a great story because they cause such a ruckus that like the police come after them and they start fighting the cops and they get arrested. One of them get arrested and the rest leave. Then they come back to break the guy out of jail and it's it's just amazing. So that's where the term painting the town red came from. But he was in living in London at the time of Spring Hill Jack started showing up. And he was noted for having this, like, very volatile relationship with women. You know, he's this kind of guy who, um, you know, slept around a lot and just treated women really poorly. And the people, like I said, I made a point of saying the people that Spring Hill Jack was going after were cops and women. So because he's a drunk, he's having a bad relationship with cops and doesn't like the ladies. And he's rich. So a lot of things that are describing Jack are very specific. Like it talks about how he has the metallic claws and Mm. he has these clothes that they say it looks like he was wearing rain gear, but it was very tight. And it all sounds like very specialized things. So it's entirely possible that because he had money and time and clearly nothing better to do, he just had all this stuff made for him, you know, some kind of like apparatus that he could shoot flames and jump super high and used it to screw with people. So he really is like Batman, but if Bruce Wayne just wanted to prank people, he's like he's <laughs> like Ashton Kutcher Batman. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the stuff I read said that specifically one of his favorite things to do was scare people, to like wait in alleys when people were walking by and just jump out and, and spook them, you know, as a goof. <laughs> What's even more interesting is what the ripple effect of something like this would be. Because you mentioned that this happened around 1877 was mm-hmm. when it really uh, entered notoriety in the Penny Dreadfuls. It was in 1888 that Jack the Ripper hit the streets of London. Now, I know that H.H. H. Holmes, America's first great serial killer... Still looked, still number one in my heart. <laughs> yeah, looked looked at the infamous nature of Jack the Ripper and said, I can do that, but better. There was a level of notoriety that he wanted. You have to wonder if at that time a slightly younger Jack the Ripper read the Penny Dreadfuls uh, of Spring-Heeled Jack sure. 
and thought I can do something like that. Right. Maybe it was, I'm not saying that it was the seed of his madness, but maybe it helped right. it bloom. Cause I mean, he still vivisected people in the most brutal yeah. way. Yeah. But just like HH H. Holmes, he ramped it up. Yeah. Like exactly. Yeah. Like, and as far as optics and branding, there's a, you've got a manual right there to be like, this is going to scare the hell out of people. And you know, he wore a cloak and it's, there does seem to be some kind of evolution there that, that happens, which is, which is kind of crazy. Well, it's very interesting that you bring that up, Dave, because uh, Henry, in when the, the, the original sighting stopped, it was in 1843, and that was around the time that Henry got married. So he married and he settled down and he moved to the country, and by all accounts, after he got married, he stopped being a, a, a drunken frat boy and kind of like cleaned up his act, and he actually died – in 1859 he was he was uh, another thing is that he was a very athletic guy and he rode horses really? like professionally and he died um he fell off a horse and died in 1859 so a lot of the accounts ex- happened afterwards like the the ones at Aldershot Barracks that was 1877 so it definitely wasn't him so there was at least one copycat sure and sure. also in the 1843 accounts, it talks about how the, the look changed and he was much more demonic looking. So it's also possible that wasn't him either, but somebody else who was, you know, took the original formula and added on to it. Right. It really is almost like a, a dickhead <laughs> Zorro. Like there, there, there's something about like there will always be a spring Jack and he will not defend anyone. He will just tear your shirt and scare the shit out of you. And I like how if it did end with Jack the Ripper, it's like, well, it's all fun and games until five <laughs> prostitutes get mutilated. <laughs> you know what they say. <laughs> yeah, that's so I, I that is so crazy. And it's I, I feel like there's a there's a kindred spirit between Spring Jack and the subject of Theo, your first mini episode topic which was the which was the um phantom the patriot. patriot there it's because it's a little bit it, it hits so many genres like there's mm-hmm. there's something about spring Hill jack that's a little bit horror story but it's also kind of vigilante even though he's not like fighting crime but there's something about masked man in the streets and then adding in this story about henry who could potentially be him there's almost this warrior's gang style like him and his crew getting rowdy in the streets like it's it it basically touches on all of these like different storylines in one person's life oh yeah and when i when i was initially when i initially wanted to do this like i i knew about spring hill jack but i had no idea about the henry beresford stuff and to me i i'm really glad that i looked into that because that's the most interesting part of it now yeah that's that really it, cool yeah explaining that it could have just been this guy with a lot of money and he would have had to have had somebody build something for him some kind of contraption so yeah. you're you're absolutely right he had to have some kind of crew Especially Maybe when you he th- had a Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say he had to have some some wise old man built just slaving away at a contraption that could make it look like he's shooting flames out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. And that guy has to justify that to himself somehow. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I, I really like that story. I think it's really cool. And just the idea of a, you know, Victorian era guy just terrorizing a town, but just turns out he's just a dick. Yeah. Again, the it's merits really of having televisions just are uncountable. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely, this, and we're definitely going to have to post happened uh, if, if Seinfeld invented. This could have very well have been Ashton Kutcher. 
you know. <laughs> the immortal Ashton Kutcher. Yeah, it was, I mean, even with television, he still made punked. And, you know, you take away TV, I think he's just running around ripping bodices and burping up flames. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I love that story. I'm, I'm glad that, that you shared that one. It's, it's right in our wheelhouse. I think it's just so full of bizarreness that can't be explained. Mm-hmm. But I'm with you, Theo. I, I really hope he was this Henry guy and that because I think the insanity of someone or maybe not even sanity, but like the boredom of someone to do that is so much more entertaining than he's a ghost or he's a demon or something like that. Yeah. And it's really shitty to run around, you know, scaring women and, you know, assaulting them. But at the same time, that's really funny, too. Yeah. I mean, we're not praising but, this guy, but, don't, but you know, but good don't on him. do that. Um, don't know. Don't do listening. that. <laughs> it's a bad thing. Uh, we're just as bad as the Penny Dreadfuls, capitalizing <laughs> off of off of all this suffering. <laughs> awesome, yeah. So um, I, I think we we've, we've covered two different, really uh, two completely different arenas. I think, and and going into our third, I believe you had something to say about combs, Dave. Yeah, we're we're gonna learn about all, all of right, the combs. So getting back to it, there's the wood. <laughs> And the plastic, the wood was a lot more popular back at the original invention of the comb, but they found that because of the repeated instances of moisture, that the wood would sometimes get warped, thus making a comb that you can't use. So then they came up with the great idea of plastic combs and the grid. I, God damn it. You guys really have to interrupt me before I start <laughs> doing that. You were going somewhere with that, man. I was proud of you. <laughs> I know. Every, I know everything there is to know about combs. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, said in a deep baritone <laughs> <laughs> but i think there was something else you wanted to touch on how about this spend like three minutes talking about your other thing and then we'll just bring it home hard on combs ivory combs <laughs> bone combs ever everything you can think of mustache All combs right. <laughs> so aside from combs what i'm going to talk Sean about puffy combs anyway keep going <laughs> is probably one of my favorite stories out there yeah, I'm a huge fan uh, of a lot of this, but I'm also a really big fan of research. And what often happens is you do enough research and it becomes a bummer because suddenly there's like a very rational scientific explanation for something. And it's like, well, good. I'm glad I know that. I'm glad we as a species know that. But it's also a bummer because it sucks all the mystery out of it. Right. The reason you looked into it in the first place kind of disappears. Yeah, exactly. This, however, is still considered to be one of the greatest mysteries, uh, unsolved mysteries. It happened in 1959 in Russia. Now, what I'm about to talk about is called the Dietlov Pass Incident. Here's the story. Nine campers uh, who were all basically friends from college. Some of them were still in college. Some of them had very recently graduated. But it, it was like a standard friend group. Went on what's considered a Category 3 exposition, uh, which is r- really one of the most challenging and dangerous expositions you can go on. And you had Boris, the jock, Katya, the nerd, <laughs> <laughs> Igor, the funny stoner. And they're going to find out what happens when people stop being fake and start being real. <laughs> um, but they were hiking on the Ural Mountains in Russia, and basically what happened is it was supposed to be, I believe, a 12-day exposition, expedition, 
and they didn't check in. Uh, they didn't come back when they were supposed to. This caused some alarm with their friends and loved ones, obviously, but the authorities said, you know, it's very common for uh, an expedition like this to be a couple days delayed just because of weather or something. Right. But they continued to not show up. Eventually, a search party was sent out, and it got to the point where the Russian government even supplied helicopters and airplanes and everything to aid in the search. And for the Russian government to give a shit, you know things have gone south. <laughs> yeah, in 1959. <laughs> right, for right. them to do anything other than be like, oh, there's very poor visibility in the mountains. We wait for them to come down. <laughs> a surprisingly good Russian accent. <laughs> All right, so when they found the campsite, it raised a million questions. So I just want to run through what they found there. The tent was covered in snow and ripped apart from the inside out. This gave the impression that the campers were trying to get out of there in a big goddamn hurry. Now, in this area, it's extremely isolated, uh, it's Mansi territory, which if you're not familiar with Mansi, kind of, you'd be on track if you thought about it as Russia's Native Americans. Um, so this is a very heavily um, isolated area. The tent was torn up from the inside, and all of their clothes and their shoes were still in the tent and in the surrounding area. Two of the campers were found about half a mile away, uh, at the wood line because they were camping uh, on the upslope of a mountain. The two campers were found dead and in their underwear with a small campfire uh, or what looked like the beginnings of what could have been a campfire. Their deaths were both hypothermia, listed as hypothermia. However, the tree line right where they were hiding, had branches snapped up to five meters above the ground, implying two theories. One, they were frantically climbing the trees, trying to get away from something, or two, something very, very big was yeah. chasing them. Um, the snapped trees that, again, five meters, that's about 30 feet, Yeah. Um, went substantially into the tree line, Um it was the first head-scratcher in what turned out to be a very big head-scratcher. Three more bodies were found in between the campsite and those two campers, um, a little bit off to the north, though. Those three campers also died of hypothermia but were found in a line, implying that they were running from something and they collapsed. We have to understand is in these temperatures, human skin will freeze in a matter of minutes. Right. So they didn't get very far. They were also very ill-equipped. They Many of them didn't have shoes. Were they also... So they were all in various states of undress, I guess, because they left the tent in such a hurry? Yes, exactly. And two of the bodies found uh, in that line uh, had defensive wounds on their hands. Ooh. Okay, so that... Again, all of this on its own is like, what the fuck happened to these people? It took two months for them to find the four remaining campers, and it just raised even more questions. And here's why. They were found about a mile away in a ravine. They, however, did not die from hypothermia. They died from, when I say impacts, the medical examiner at the time 
said that humans could not have done this. These were more injuries seen in high-speed car accidents. So, so like concussion, like something slammed into them, or like broken, like like powdered bone, like like just yeah, crunched. basically yeah. many of them had crushed ribs uh, that were completely shattered. A few of them had a fracture, had fractured skulls and crushed skulls. However, no soft tissue damage, mm. which makes this very interesting. That's weird. Uh, one of them was missing their eyes, and the other was missing a tongue. Again, though no soft tissue damage so there was a lot of damage on the inside of their body sure. implying like incredibly high force force right. uh that people just are not capable of right. and no scratches no bite marks nothing that would no, no exactly. nothing that would imply oh it was a bunch of bears or anything like that yeah that's why they couldn't write it off uh quickly as an animal attack because there was no signs of an animal attack the other theory that got blown to pieces in the investigation was that there was an avalanche however an avalanche is obviously a very powerful force of nature there was no sign of an avalanche uh anywhere in yeah the i feel like an avalanche area. is pretty obvious that was their initial thought after bear yeah and people um, tend to and probably even back then people tend to monitor those things there's usually like a park service or something keeping track oh, they of do. avalanches in the area Apparently, what the the reason they ruled out avalanche pretty damn quickly was usually the tree line with any kind of avalanche is compromised in sure. some way. They could tell from the growth though that there was no avalanche. Right. It was a clear line, as if something very big ran through it or or flew through it or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And then the final theory was a fall from a great height except again they were nowhere nowhere near like a large cliff or anything uh th these were incredibly powerful impacts to these people now this is where it gets a little weird oh now i mean it's okay, already I was waiting for it it's to already get a been weird. kind it's of been weird, pretty straightforward so far so <laughs> here's where it gets a little more weird the investigation wrapped up in 1959, the same year that it happened. Uh, that area was closed for three years. The minute that investigation ended, the Russian government classified the entire investigation. It was classified for 40 years, and the files were released by the Russian government in the mid-90s. However, when those files released, there were missing huge segments right. of information Redacted. from the original yeah. investigation. Uh, so that created a huge uh, shroud of mystery around it. And where it gets even creepier... So like I said, this was in Mansi territory. Now, the Mansi... Uh, it wasn't quite like the Native American, like certain Native American tribes I know clashed uh, with the settlers here and vice versa. Uh, the Mansi were relatively peaceful. That like, Because at first people thought maybe it was the Mansi, but that got ruled out pretty quickly because it uh, it was like, A, the, this couldn't have been done by a human, and B, it would make no sense. It was completely out of character. There it would be out of motive. character for yeah. them. The pass that they were in the valley translates in Mansi on their maps to just don't go there. And <laughs> the, mountain, there. <laughs> the mountain that they died on translates to mountain of the dead. Wow. So I got to know in your, in your research, as far as 
the conspiracy theorists of the world out there, what would you say is the leading explanation? Is it something spiritual? Is it something extraterrestrial? What are what what do you what do you think ends up being the biggest? I bet it's this. Okay, so there's there's a <laughs> basically pick your conspiracy group and they've all they got their teeth at in this it. incident. Yeah. Uh, al- the alien nuts say that this was absolutely aliens. The reason for that being is the four campers that were found had radiation on their clothing. Mm. The four that were found were a little bit better clothed than the uh, other five that died from hypothermia. Right. So they say it's aliens. This is also supposed to be the strongest evidence of the Yeti. That's kind of where my mind went immediately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Especially that's why with I the, asked. Yeah. Talking about the uh, the tree lines looking like something big came out of it and the, you know, the defensive wounds. That's I, I was actually thinking Yeti, too. Well, and it's crazy, too, because you think about, I mean, when I picture a Yeti and everybody has their own, you know, thought in their head of a mythological being, the concept of potentially 30 feet is horrible that is really like i would have said like oh 12 maybe like you know maybe a little bit taller than a bear but walks around like a man no this would be a giant on earth oh yeah and then what's so creepy to me is what did the mansi know that everyone else didn't know that they called that valley don't go there and the mountain mountain of the dead yeah there there does seem to be this ancient wisdom of all right, do what you want, but we've been here for, you know, a millennia and everybody knows. And I, it, that's such a perfect ghost story kind of tribal thing because for probably however long people didn't go there and maybe generation after generation kind of forgot why. And it took some happy go lucky, you know, real world Russia kids to, to go out there and find <laughs> out exactly why. Oh, yeah. And then why was it classified for 40 years? Yeah. Like, and then why once it was released was so much of what should be like a relatively straight up sure. investigation sure. be redacted? It could also very well have been some kind of Russian weapon testing because that's, you know, right smack dab in the Cold War. Okay, so that that is another theory. Yeah, I mean, that was another thought I had. Yeah, is that they were testing... Uh, high altitude bombs and what mm. they would do they would be dropped out of planes attached to parachutes and they would go off about a thousand feet above the ground uh, causing a shock wave so that's another theory that the russians basically accidentally killed uh, these campers and then covered it way the hell up right and that there's such a shroud around it because I mean, if it had happened in most other countries, we might not even be as interested in it. But the fact that it happened in Russia in the 50s just adds to it makes it like a perfect science fiction story for Americans to think, well, of course, they were getting up to all kinds of crazy shit then. Yeah, they were not uh, certainly doing some shady shit then. So here's a a thought was the, the, the area that they were in. Was this like. Were they the first ones to be there for a while? Because, I mean, I'm going to imagine it wasn't, like, a popular tourist destination, you know. No, don't like go I there, said, Girlfriend Valley. It was, cons- <laughs> <laughs> it was considered uh, Category 3 right. uh, area. So, th- you, you know, it, 
it was for experienced campers right. and hikers okay. only. But I mean, these guys were very experienced hikers and campers. There was one survivor, he, but like he wasn't there for the incident. He basically fell ill a couple of days into the trek and had to turn back. And he's the only one that survived. He died at 79. Wow. Uh, but he obviously has no answers. He was he was there before the incident. Sure, but sure. So he didn't he didn't come back and report, well, we were hearing strange noises or anything like that. No, no. Yeah. No. He he fell very ill and was sent back. But, you know, like I said, the we can theorize. Uh there's so many potential explanations, both uh, logical and illogical and supernatural and natural. Uh, however, the facts of this case are so interesting and so spooky, and nine people died in what seems to be horrific ways. I mean, it took, when they were found, it took three days to thaw the bodies, like, until they could actually begin doing the autopsies. Should have just microwaved them. <laughs> I it certainly uh, gets dinner going much more quickly. Like if I'm gonna cook chicken, but like it's been in the freezer for so long, I mean, just yeah. like pop it in the nuker for like. 10 yeah, it's minutes like when you come it. home and you're like, "Damn it, I forgot to put it in the fridge last night." What am I gonna do? We 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 solved that <laughs> issue a long time ago. So, uh, it's Russians, so, what are you gonna do? It's so crazy. There's already enough hor- horrific ways to die on a mountain. Like Mount Everest is just littered with bodies of people who just didn't make it because it's such a difficult climb and they succumb to hypothermia or they fell or all these different things. That's terrifying enough. I am particularly spooked by all of the physical things that you described of having to their bodies because it is. it does almost seem... I don't know. I guess everybody's going to have their own leading theory, but it almost does seem extraterrestrial would be like a leading one for a good reason. Cause it just, even a Yeti is something that is of this world. We imagine, you know, it, there could be a mystical bit to it, but if we picture it as, you know, a large animal, it, it's hard to imagine a struggle with any kind of creature of earth that wouldn't leave you scratched or, or torn or, or something like that. Like just the fact that these, that there's something that doesn't really make physical sense to their injuries. It's gonna It's baffling really. The eyes and the tongue missing from the four that were found. I kind of dismissed that pretty quickly only because I was like, that could have been done by animals after the fact. It's the softest, if it's the softest tissue. Sure. Birds are going to come down and peck out the eyes. I mean, that's, yeah, that's easy. That's easy. So, I mean, that's why I discount that pretty quickly. However, uh, it's the fact that the medical examiner was like, yeah, we see this in like high speed car accidents and nowhere else. And Russia knows their car accidents. If anybody wants to go on YouTube, (laughs) there are many videos of Russian people getting into car accidents. You know, the part that fascinates me is when you talked about how two of them, when you said got like like a mile away and like tried to build a campfire. So some of them got away and thought that they were safe. And yeah, well, exactly. Like, and that was where the branches were snapped off five meters above the (laughs) the goddamn floor. Where it's like, did they, if they were running from something, did they think they were safe for a little while? And again, seasoned campers where they're like, all right, we're very ill-prepared. We have to begin making a a campfire. Has there, has there been a cinematic version of this yet? Like even like a, like a cheap sci-fi version or something? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there probably has been. I have no idea though. 
I really yeah. don't know. I mean, it just seems like such a perfect setup, especially if you consider like the second half of that movie being just the two leftover ca- ca- uh, campers in their underwear, building a so fire, thinking they've made it, it out. It looks like in 2013, a movie called Devil's Pass was released. Oh, um, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Uh, looks like it did okay. So we're going to have to check that out. Yeah, I remember it coming out, but I didn't watch it. So, well, maybe that's uh, something we could do soon. Check that out. Awesome. Yeah, we'll give our our review. That's that is such a cool story. I I love that you brought that one up, Dave. And yeah, I actually that's do, really neat. Once you got through it, I actually do remember you talking about that before. I think just casually. I don't even think it was podcast related. I remember you bringing it up, but I, I all of the the grimy gritty details really make it a great story. Yeah, and you know this the Stalin era of Russia wasn't exactly forthcoming with information so who knows we might years and years from now we might find out something about this that they declassify yeah we could i mean <laughs> it was when draculas you, when you think about <laughs> when you think about all of the rumors around like the mk ultra experiments and all that stuff that seems very far-fetched and then finding out that they were real government pursuits scientific pursuits there there really could be something to what dave was saying about the possibility of some kind of test on some on a weapon yeah yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, any anything else about that? Is I, I mean, that's that's certainly certainly enough. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, I can tell you guys are in the same realm as me, where you're like, there there has to be more. Yeah. Like, but no, no answers. Not yet. Like that's just something that happened, and we all just have to live with it. <laughs> yeah. So if you give us money, we will go to Russia. And we will go to the Ural Mountains and we'll check it out. We'll solve this. (laughs) And we'll never leave because they'll take our passports and put us in the gulag. I just need to make sure I wear like flattering underwear because if that's how I'm going to be found, I don't want to look like a dweeb. Yeah, no, and I'll send you guys photos. (laughs) I'll send you guys my underwear. Um, And and yeah, the, the, and here's the thing this isn't because this didn't happen in like the early 1800s, you know, this happened in 59. We have photos and their journals. Like there's photos of them on the expedition, like clowning around right. and being very like, nor like we would be in the woods. Yeah. Taking kissy face selfies and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. In their wife beaters. <laughs> <laughs> um, You're but no, mountains, like, bro. <laughs> the these were like very normal college kids and we it's very well documented about where they got we know that they got to this mountain because it was in all their journals there's photos along the trail and everything and, and it's just a lot of a lot of these stories that we're going to tell suffer from the invention of the camera um sure this is not one of them it just makes it that much more real right right yeah that's that's awesome i love that um so that's so that's all three of the stories in our i guess hodgepodge of horror part two i i think we'll make this a a regular sort of intermittent series because it's kind of refreshing for us it's kind of fun to be able to listen to each other's topics and and hear it sort of firsthand instead of doing all the research on all sides so we get to kind of go along with with the listeners, but we'd love to to hear what you guys think about these things. And also, if there's little kind of bite sized stories that have always fascinated you, please reach out to us uh, through email and Twitter and 
And uh, Thea or Dave, do you do you either you guys want to tell people where to find us and and give us that sort of information and those sorts of suggestions? You do, yeah, it, man. Theo. I always mess we, it up. <laughs> we're at uh, aoepod.com. You can find us there. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, and you can on Twitter. We're at AOE Podcast, I believe. Yep. And um, our email address is just. Um, it's at it's it's age of enfrightenment at gmail.com. Um, oh, that's that's easy. I should have remembered that. Yeah. <laughs> or if that. you if you want, if you go to our our contact section on the website, you can actually email us directly from the website and it'll come right to us. So we we'd love to hear stories like this uh, long term uh or the long format ones as well, but I think these really short things I know I'd love to hear really out of left field things that that listeners might have that we can look into a little bit and and share with each other so that would be really cool oh yeah all right so uh thanks for tuning in and goodbye from everyone here at age of enfrightment and we cannot wait to come back in two weeks with part two of witchcraft and we're going to talk about what witchcraft is today in 2017 bye everyone all right thanks everybody all right have a good one folks 